me, if you will, to the epistle of 1 John in your pew Bible. It's page 864. 1 John, reading at chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. We come this morning to part three of our series on Christian assurance. Having solid assurance of your salvation is vitally important for your life as a Christian. We will see this morning that God wants believers to have certainty about eternal life, and that that certainty is always based primarily on the Word of God. So let us listen as we read God's Word, 1 John at chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves His child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which He has given about His Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Father, please open our eyes to behold Your Word and to understand it, to apply it to our lives. For Jesus' sake and in His name we pray. Amen. It is God's will for Christians to grow stronger and stronger in their assurance, in knowing that you're right with God through faith in Christ. But the fact is that many Christians, probably most Christian at Christians at some time or, or, or another, struggle with this area and struggle with doubts. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a British Baptist preacher who began his London ministry as a 19-year-old in 1854, only 19 years old as he began. And he remained in that same pastorate until his death at age 57. He was a phenomenon. Long before the modern megachurch, 6,000 people crowded every service to listen to Spurgeon preach. No building seemed to be large enough to hear the masses that wanted to hear him. He was only 27 when he preached at what was called the Crystal Palace in London, the secular building, to preach to almost 24,000 there, all without amplification. 
Sometimes he had to ask the members of his church not to attend on the following Sunday so that newcomers might be able to find a seat. Once in 1879, in fact, the entire congregation left so that newcomers waiting outside could enter, and still every seat was claimed. Spurgeon's messages were printed in newspapers and individually with sales of single copies running up to 25,000 per week. His collected sermons fill 63 thick volumes. The largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. Christianity, uh, Christian History Magazine asserts that Spurgeon is history's most widely read preacher, apart, apart from biblical ones, of course. Today, there is more available written by Spurgeon than by any other Christian author, living or dead. And if evangelical pastors were surveyed as their choice of the greatest preacher since biblical times, no doubt Spurgeon would be selected. Now, I say all this because when it comes to thinking about assurance, we would think, surely a man of God with such singular impact on millions for decades would never doubt he was a Christian. But in his autobiography, Spurgeon wrote of just such a dark battle in his own life and heart. To quote him, I felt at that time very weary and very sad, very heavy at heart, and I began to doubt in my own mind whether I really enjoyed the things which I preached to others. So, despite his incredible influence, He wondered if he was an outsider to the kingdom of God. Again, to quote him, it seemed to be a dreadful thing for me to be only a waiter and not a guest at the gospel feast. Well, my point in all of this is that if the the greatly gifted and highly spiritual and much used by God, Spurgeon at times wrestled with doubts about his salvation, then It shouldn't be surprising that many Christians do as well. And so this morning, our focus is on this wonderful text from 1 John. Notice that that verse 13 gives us the purpose for which the Apostle John is writing this epistle. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes so that they might know that they have eternal life. Life. The purpose is similar to the purpose statement of John's gospel, which is found in the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, but it's not quite the same. Listen to that. It says, but these, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, the purpose of the gospel of John is to produce faith as Jesus Christ is held for held forth, to bring about faith in people's lives. But 1 John is to help those who have already believed to grow in their assurance, to help believers have solid assurance. And so, 1 John has often been called the epistle of Christian assurance. So, let us learn from this short but powerful letter about how we can have certainty of eternal life in Christ. We have two main points. And they each concern 
a way of assurance. The first is the bedrock. The second is the secondary kind of assurance. So let's look at each of these this morning. First of all, the bedrock of our assurance is God's written Word. The bedrock is God's Word. It's like the solid granite foundation on which the house is set. Again, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. The epistle of John is God's written Word. It's a gift to us from God. And we could extend that and say all of Scripture is given that we might have certainty through the truth of God. Scripture is given by God so that sinners might know the living Christ and that they might have certainty of heaven through faith in Christ. Look at verses 9 through 12 again, which describes this in more depth. It says, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made Him out to be a liar because He has not believed the testimony God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony. In other words, John is summarizing the gospel here. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. In the verses right before that, John speaks in somewhat cryptic phrases about the water and the blood and the Spirit, and there's some dispute about what that means, but most evangelicals believe that this means that the blood is referring to the death of Christ, the water, the baptism of Christ. In other words, the bookends surrounding the public ministry of Christ. And at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in the form of the dove, and you heard the words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God's testimony. And at the cross as well, the Roman said, surely this was the Son of God. So, John is saying, the certainty is founded on God's testimony. The Christian's primary assurance is always based on God's Word. Belief in Christ is based on God's Word, and assurance is tied into that same certainty on the foundation of God's Word. Whether you're a new believer or whether you've been a believer for 50 years, whether you're struggling in some valley of trial or temptation, or whether you're experiencing a time of great fruitfulness and spiritual blessing and joy in your walk with Christ, always our central and primary certainty that we have life in Christ is a certainty based on God's Word. Think of some of the great promises of God's Word. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that promise of God? It is the testimony of God. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ through the Word of God on the basis of that rich promise? Of course, true belief means more than just mental assent intellectual assent. If I ask you, do you believe in George Washington? Probably all of you would say, well, sure, I believe. Uh, I believe that he was the first president. I believe what the history books tell about him for the most part. I don't know if he cut down the cherry tree, but other than that, okay, I believe. But 
you're not relying on George Washington in any way, I hope, unless, uh, you know, you're pretty far out there. No, belief in Christ goes beyond mental assent to certain facts about Christ, even mental assent to facts about the fact that He truly was the Son of God or that He rose from the dead. It means resting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and to give you eternal life. But if you have trusted Christ, however weak and hesitant your faith might be, it is founded on the bedrock. It's founded on the Word of God. Take some of the other clear promises of Scripture. John 5, 24, Jesus is speaking again in this case. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's a promise from God. That's the testimony of God. Or Acts 2, 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. These promises are the testimony of God. They are God's infallible Word. And our, our assurance, you see, always comes back to God and His Word. Pastor Don Whitney writes about the problem of doubt as he tried to help one woman in his congregation. To quote him as he worked with her, he says it this way, an, introspect, an introspective young woman told me she had been riding a roller coaster of assurance. Lately, she had been in a twisted valley of doubt, clouded by fears that she had deceived herself about her motives and responses three years earlier when she professed faith in Christ. She had repeatedly asked herself whether back then she had repented right and believed right. Recalling this pattern in previous conversations with her, it occurred to me that despite her apparent concern to respond appropriately to the gospel, her focus was misplaced. She was trying to find assurance in what she had done rather than in what God had done. As she became more Godward in her focus, she had more consistent assurance and joy in her salvation. I think that's a helpful explanation of how our focus needs to be Godward. This Godward focus is the thing we have to see in this first point. It's God's testimony that is the bedrock. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. If you're struggling with assurance, the best possible solution and the way to greater certainty is to fill your mind with God's Word, with God's truth. Let your emphasis, let your meditation be on the sure and certain promises of God. Your assurance of salvation should never be fundamentally on an experience that you once had. However wonderful or spiritual that that experience may have been, our assurance not based on experience. Your assurance must not be based on some religious ceremony. Your assurance should not be based on the opinion of others. Sometimes pastors will have people come to them, and it's if the people want the pastor to somehow pronounce certainty on them. Then, no, your assurance can't re- 
rest on any opinion of man. It can't rest on anything that you've done. It doesn't rest on your good works. It doesn't rest ultimately on the fruit of faith in your life. No, it is to be based on the certainty of God's Word, which is tied to the very character of God. The Apostle John says, God cannot lie. For 18 years in the early 20th century, Pastor Ironside was pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. An elderly man confessed to him desperate struggles with the assurance of his salvation. And he told Pastor Ironside how he longed for some definite witness that he could not mistake. Ironside said, suppose that you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? Yes, the man replied, I think it would. An angel should be right. But Ironside went on to say, suppose on your deathbed, Satan came and said, I was that angel transformed to deceive you. What would you say? Well, the man was speechless. Ironside told him that God has given us something more reliable and authoritative than the voice of an angel. He has given us His Son and His Word, His infallible Word. Then Ironside asked a question that each of us needs to hear. Isn't that enough to rest on? Yes, it is. The bedrock of our assurance is God's written Word. And whatever your spiritual state this morning, whether you are apart from Christ and you know you don't have faith in Him, whether you're weak in faith, whether you're in a time of serious doubt, whether you're strong in faith, whatever the spiritual state you might be in, the solution is always this, not to look back to some experience and to try to evaluate whether it was true or not, but to look to Jesus Christ in faith. Cast yourself upon Him. Cast yourself upon Him anew, whether you've done it for a thousand times. That's That's the life of the Christian, to rely on Christ. So the answer is always the same. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, on the basis of the bedrock of God's Word. Well, for our second main point is this. Our secondary assurance is found in the fruit of faith in our lives. So the bedrock is the Word of God, but the the secondary kind of assurance is Scripture speaks about again and again is the fruit of faith in our lives. We saw this last week in Romans 8 when we saw that the one who is led by the Spirit is the Son of God, and led by the Spirit is obeying the Word of God. This second kind of assurance really addresses the question, how do I know that my faith in Christ is genuine? And at some point or another, almost all Christians wrestle with that at some point. How do I know that my faith is is not false because we know that the Bible does speak about people having a false faith, a faith that's not real, the kind of faith that James speaks about when he says, faith without works is dead. If we turn James' words around, we could say it like this, living faith, a live faith, or true faith will bring about works. It will bring forth fruit. And here in 1 John, we could say that even the main emphasis of 1 John is on this fruit of faith. John highlights repeatedly in his epistle three kinds of fruit, sometimes called the tests of life in 1 John. Evidences of, of faith, of true faith, and these three are right belief or doctrine, love for God and others, 
and holiness of life, increasing obedience. Belief, love, holiness. And if you read through 1 John, you see these themes interwoven throughout the book. Let's briefly highlight them because we find them in our text. The first is right belief, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you're born of God, it will bring forth the fruit of belief. Similarly, if we turn back to chapter 4, we see this same theme at verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist, he denies the Father and the Son. This theme comes out in the book. In other words, the Apostle John is saying there are already heretics. There are already those who teach falsehood. And especially at that point, it was about the person of Christ. There were those apparently in that time who were saying that the, the spiritual Jesus descended on the earthly Jesus at His baptism. And then before He was put to death, that Jesus left and ascended. So, there was this misinterpretation and this heresy about the incarnation. There were those who were saying that Jesus wasn't fully God or He wasn't fully man. And so, right belief about Jesus especially, His incarnation, that He was truly God and man, that He rose from the dead, that salvation is by grace through faith in Him, those are all at the heart of the right belief a Christian will have. A true Christian will have right belief about Christ. But then there's also this evidence of loving God, chapter 5 at verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God to obey His commands. Sometimes when you read the epistle of John, you feel like you're going around and around. What does it mean to love God? Well, that shows up in loving others. Well, what does it mean to love others? It comes from loving God. Well, what does it mean to love God? It means to obey His commands. It goes around and around like that because John is saying these all are tied together. Chapter 4, verse 12, no one has seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Love is the premier Christian fruit, love of God and love of others. The Bible emphasizes that again and again. If you are born of the Spirit, the love of God will dwell within you, and it cannot be, but that love of God will overflow to love others around you. Not perfectly, not without sin, but there will be evidence. And then holiness of life. Chapter 5, Again, verses 3 to 4, this is love for God to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Overcoming the world is talking about this sinful, fallen world system that, in which we all live and which tempts us all the time and which leads us astray. And throughout the book, John is saying, the one born of God overcomes, not perfectly, not without sin. No, there's a place where John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, he's not talking about perfection, but he's saying there's this war against the world. The Christian is overcoming the world. Often, in fact, the Apostle John states this in such startling, absolute terms that Christians read this and think, oh, how can I be a Christian when he says these kinds of sins? It almost sounds like he's saying a Christian doesn't sin. No, he's not saying that. He's not saying we won't struggle with sin. But the Apostle John is saying that the Christian has a radically different relationship to sin. He's not content in his sin. He's not complacent and easy in his sin. He's not apathetic about his sin. No, he's grieving over remaining sin. He's confessing it to the Lord. He's fighting against it. He's fighting with the world. I've got crabgrass in my yard again this year, but I want you to know I'm fighting it. And I found out that those little spray things with the, you know, part weed killer, part crabgrass killer, they really don't work. You know, I've used them for years. You spray them, the crabgrass turns a little yellow, and then it's right back. I feel like I watered the crabgrass when I sprayed it. But I use crabgrass preventative. I put that on this spring. I was out there the other day. I said, I'm just going to pull some of this out, and I just started pulling it. But then I saw, oh, I thought it was just a little bit, and then I looked beyond that, and there was a whole big crop of it. So, But I have overcome the crabgrass to some degree. It's not as bad as some years. And it's better than it was about 13 years ago when we moved in. I don't think the folks who lived in the house before us took care of it at all. Now, listen, our salvation is not based on how well we battle remaining sin or how well we love others, or even if we have all the right doctrine, although you've got to believe the fundamentals about Christ to be saved. But our salvation is always and only based on the work of Jesus Christ held out to us in God's Word, the testimony of God. That's the bedrock. That must always be our main focus. Yet there should be ongoing evidence, this secondary kind of assurance in our lives. And we should see that, and it should encourage us in our walk with Christ. We should have a love for fellowship with other Christians. We should uh, be waging all-out war against the temptations of this world. Our fruit may be weak, but it's there. It's like the expectant mother who feels that baby kicking inside of her. And if a couple hours go by or at a certain point and she doesn't feel movement, she begins to worry. And she might even go to the doctor and say, I just want to make sure everything's okay because if there's life there, there's movement. There's evidence. Maybe the evidence of faith in Christ is at a low ebb in your life right now. And there are many possible reasons for that. It may be because of an especially difficult circumstance in your life. Hardship often brings us low. It might be because of satanic attacks. Satan loves 
to, to condemn the saints. It might be because of a lack of knowledge of what the Bible teaches, and you just don't understand much about God's Word. It might be because you are refusing to deal with known sin in your life. That always tends to weaken assurance. It might be because of spiritual laziness. You can find time for 10 hours or 20 hours of TV a week, but somehow you can't find one hour of total time a week for Bible study and prayer. It may even be because of illness or your natural temperament. Whatever the reason may be, the answer is always the same. Go to God and go to His Word and drink deeply from the fountain of Jesus Christ. The great hymn writer William Cooper, often pronounced Cowper because that's how it's spelled, who lived in the 1700s and wrote some of the greatest hymns went through very difficult and deep depression in his life. And the last decade of his life was a period of deep gloom and this settled notion that, that God had cast him off. And the problem was he was uh, what the Puritans would call, he was of a very melancholic temperament. He was very pessimistic and he was given to discouragement. But he had his highs and he had his lows, but he fought throughout his life to gain assurance And he reinforced his doubts with the truth of God. And because of his struggle, God used him to bless millions of Christians ever since. Some of our favorite hymns are hymns written by him. One of them is this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Or also these words, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Cooper wrestled with assurance. He wrestled with darkness and doubt, but he fought to the very end. A number of years ago, Masterpiece Theater had a series about a man a European who fought in World War I. Before he left for the war, he wrote a letter to his girlfriend pouring out his heart to her, telling her that he loved, him, that he loved her and telling her, asking her to marry him and to wait for him for when he returned from the war. And he went off to war, but to his great sorrow, he never heard back from her. And he was broken-hearted and embittered because of it, and eventually he returned from the war to return to the small town where they were from, and he found her married to another man. So he spent his life in isolation and bitterness on a small farm outside of town, consumed with what had occurred. And when he was a very old man, he sat on a bench in the town, and a woman who had returned to the town for a funeral was sitting on the bench, and they began to talk. And as it turned out, this woman was a dear friend of his old flame. And the man eventually told her his, his sorrowful story and how it had crushed him all his life. The woman on the bench paused for a long time, and then she asked him, are you sure you never received a letter from her? 
He trembled with emotion and said, if I had ever gotten one message from her, I would have read it every day for the rest of my life. Several moments passed. The woman, deep in thought, obviously disturbed, said, I mailed the letter to you myself. I was going to the post office, and she gave me a letter to you telling you that she loved you and that she would marry you. But obviously, the letter was lost, and you never heard from her. And so this poor man spent his entire life in misery and bitterness because he never received the assurance of his beloved's love. God has written his love letter to us in the Bible, and he has given us the certainty of his testimony, and he calls us to believe and to rest in his word with full assurance. I mentioned earlier about the great preacher Charles Spurgeon and the time of his struggle with assurance, most likely in his case because of his chronic gout and the associated pain and discouragement from that illness. But during the low ebb of his assurance, he attended a church in a town in the English countryside one Sunday. The man who conducted the service that day was not an experienced preacher, but he was an engineer of that day. He read the scriptures and he prayed and then he preached. And instead of preaching his own message, wouldn't you guess it, unaware of the identity of who was there visiting, he preached one of Spurgeon's own sermons. That was done a lot in those days. Nevertheless, Spurgeon later wrote these words. He said, as he sat there, the tears flowed freely from my eyes. I was moved to the deepest emotion by every sense of the sermon, and I felt all my difficulty removed, for the gospel I saw was very dear to me and had a wonderful effect upon my own heart. When Spurgeon, after the service, introduced himself, the embarrassed man confessed, why, it was one of your sermons that I preached. The great preacher replied, yes, I know it was, but that was the very message I needed to hear because I then saw that I did enjoy the very word I preached myself. How ironic that God would use one of Spurgeon's own sermons to renew his sense of assurance and to fix his hope anew on the great mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Do you have the assurance from God's Word that you have eternal life in Christ? If not, then the Bible says, flee to Jesus Christ. Put all your trust in the mighty promises of God. He will give you new life, eternal life. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the astounding assurance that You give us that we sinners can be saved by grace, can be brought to heaven, can be given the certainty of eternal life founded on Your Word. Work in each heart this morning for anyone who may be doubting or discouraged, for anyone who doesn't understand the gospel and is just beginning to dawn in their minds even now, please work by Your Spirit that Jesus might be magnified, that His beauty might be displayed, and that everyone may trust in Him. We pray in His glorious name. Amen.